Welcome to Talk Public Health. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Talk Public Health, our sponsors or supporters. Any views or opinions are not intended to malign any individual or organization and we respect the fact that people's views and opinions are subject to change. A happy new year to our listeners out there. And a happy new decade, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Talk Public Health. We assure you missed us. We are excited for what we think is going to be an amazing second episode of our rebranded podcast. As you know, this season of our show focuses on an overarching theme. This is public health. And of course, we wouldn't have been able to take this next big step in rebranding and relaunching our show without the funding received from the This Is Public Health Europe campaign. So, a big shout out to our sponsors and supporters, the Associations of Schools of Public Health in the European Region, ASFA, the Association of Schools and Programs of Public Health, ASPPH, the University of Sheffield Schools of Health and Related Research, SHAR, and the European Public Health Master's Program, Europop Health. We seriously value your trust and support in our program. Speaking about our last supporter, if you're interested in pursuing or advancing a career in the public health workforce, or you want the freedom to live, study, and do an internship in at least three different European countries, or you want the opportunity to expand your networks and friends with people from all over the world, we encourage you to visit www.europubhealth.org ASAP. Of course, you can also reach out to the TPH team for our experience and advice about the Europub Health program. Yes, uh, most definitely I would advise you to please apply, folks. And uh, switching things up a bit, we enjoy the positive feedback that we received from you about the last episode of Talk Public Health, which centered on climate change and health. As we interviewed Minister of Health of the Bahamas, Dr. the Honorable Dwayne Sands. And if you have checked out our website, talkpublichealth.com, you would have found the episode's show notes and a full transcript of our interview with Minister Sands. This was such an important topic, and we hope to bring you more daring and engaging content in our future episodes. If this sounds like something you like, please subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and the wide range of platforms where you listen to podcasts, and you will immediately be notified when we upload new content. We also want you to check out our research project, Public Health Learning on Podcasts and Social Media, or FLOPS. Throughout this season, we will encourage our listeners to check out the FLOPS project page on our website, talkpublichealth.com slash research hyphen project where you can find more info about how you can participate, review key documents, and FAQs, which we hope you will find useful. We've really worked hard on this, and we hope that you will support us in generating new data on this important and novel public health area. For more info about FLOPS, we turn the microphone over to Annie. Hi everyone, this is Annie. For those of you who don't know, I am the other person on the Talk Public Health team. I just wanted to give you a quick update on FLOPS, our exciting social media research study that is running in parallel with this season of the podcast. 
First of all, I wanted to say thank you so much to those of you who filled in the online survey. We really can't tell you just enough how much we appreciate this. We can't thank each of you individually because it's all anonymized, but we wanted to say that given that we've designed much of this study ourselves, it has been rewarding to see its progress. The first survey will only be open for about two weeks and there are three more waves of surveys coming up over the next 12 months. Please keep an eye out for them when the links appear on social media. Thank you so much once again for your ongoing support and I'll catch you around. And now to kick off the show, drum roll everyone. What will we be addressing in this new year and decade? Let's see. As you've probably seen by the name of the episode, we decided to kick off with a daring and thought-provoking topic, which is... Uncovered. Whistleblowing and health. Yes, you've got that right. Today, we're looking into whistleblowing events in public health. Uncovering stories you've never heard how they were handled, and the results of whistleblowing in our field and study of practice. So public health. Yes, definitely. Maybe it's a good idea to take our listeners through what whistleblowing is actually, Charles. What do you think? Yeah, Naomi. Most persons may have heard the term, but for those of you who haven't, Whistleblowing is used to describe a situation when information concerning wrongdoing, which is deemed illegal or unethical, carried out by an institution is disclosed. It also could be called making a disclosure. This can be done either by a worker or an insider from said institution. So even though in the past decade, whistleblowing has frequented news articles and headlines, the term actually originated in the 19th century. But sadly, as we know that some of the core values in health are equity, social justice, and do no harm, we happen to have various health institutions subject to shocking whistleblower allegations. We will explore these whistleblowing stories and subsequent mistakes that have occurred both on individual and organizational levels. For more on this issue, we explore an iconic public health whistleblowing story that led to millions of lives being saved, but at a significant cost to the whistleblower. Now gather around and let me tell you a strange and sad tale. A long time ago, in a faraway place called Vienna, there was a big teaching hospital. It was the year 1846, and young Hungarian doctor The 28-year-old Ignaz Zemmelweis was quite pleased with himself. He was finally appointed professor's assistant in the obstetrics department of the Vienna General Hospital. But he had a problem on his hands. Expectant mothers were literally begging him not to be admitted to his clinic. Everyone in the city knew that they should try to give birth on days when the midwife's clinic was admitting patients. You see, there was a deadly disease that they used to call childbed fever, and we now call postpartum sepsis. The midwife's clinic had a mortality rate from childbed fever of 4%, whereas the medical students' and doctors' clinic mortality rate was 10% or more. Dr. Zemmelweis looked through the clinic statistics carefully, but could not come up with a cause. 
We all know that midwives are fantastic, of course, but what exactly were they doing differently from the doctors? Then, in the next year, Dr. Zemmelweis lost one of his good friends and colleagues. One of the senior doctors was accidentally wounded in the finger by a medical student's contaminated scalpel during a cadaver dissection. That was the key. Dr. Zemmelweis recognized that the cadavers of the women who died in childbirth carried something that can spread to the other patients and make them fall sick too. And that the key difference between the doctors and the midwives was that the doctors did autopsies, while the midwives did not. And the doctors and medical students were not cleaning their hands between performing autopsies and then attending to living women in labour. They hadn't discovered germs yet. So Dr. Zemmelweis wasn't sure what exactly it was in those cadavers that had that effect. He made all his medical students wash their hands after each autopsy. It worked immediately. The next month, the mortality rate of the medical students and doctors clinic dropped to 2% and stayed there. What a hero, right? But of course, the story doesn't end here. At his own hospital, they thought that these ideas of a new, mysterious, invisible, death-causing particle was a little bit strange, but they agreed that the hand-washing did give some impressive results. And as for Dr. Zemmelweis, he was quite reluctant to publish his findings. He lost his job at the Vienna General Hospital more for nationalistic political reasons, for being a Hungarian. He returned to Hungary and became the head of obstetrics at a small hospital there, where once again his policy of handwashing reduced the incidence of death from childbed fever from above 20% to below 1%. Despite this, his theories were not accepted by most of the other obstetricians in Hungary. It wasn't until 1858 that Dr. Zemmelweis published his findings as an essay rather than a proper medical journal article. In 1861, another three years later, he published a book. In the book, he lamented the slowness of his colleagues to adopt new innovations. Unfortunately, there were a lot of prominent voices criticising his book. And even worse, the combined weight of these criticisms contributed to Dr. Zemmelweis developing depression. According to some sources, he started to become psychotic with his depression. Finally, his behaviour became so erratic that his friends and families decided that he needed to be sent to a psychiatric asylum. He was admitted to a mental institution in Vienna in 1865 at the age of 47. As one could imagine, he wasn't happy there. He tried to escape. The guards caught him though and beat him up and put him in a straitjacket and left him in solitary confinement without checking on him. Unfortunately, one of the wounds from the beating became infected and he died of septicemia, essentially the disease he tried to prevent. Very few people came to his funeral. But less than 20 years after his death, thanks to the works of Robert Koch, 
germ theory became widely accepted and adopted by the medical community. That was when they realized what Semmelweis was trying to achieve with his methods all along. So, on the surface, this seems like a sad story of a whistleblowing man, but there's also a little bit more than that. Firstly, you have to recognize that he was also trying to change medical theory entirely. We can probably all imagine how difficult it would be to get people to accept a brand new death-causing substance that nobody can see. Also, I kept bringing up the fact that it took Dr. Zemmelweis a very long time to publish anything about his findings. If medical journal articles were the accepted means of professional communication, then why didn't he publish immediately? And how about his relationship with his colleagues? Would things have turned out differently for everyone if he put in some effort to become more diplomatic? And so in other words, does it matter how the whistleblowing is done? If you choose to be a whistleblower, then do you need to plan a strategy to do so? Should you be trying to make sure that you have some allies on your side? Can somebody learn to be a better and more effective whistleblower? We'd love to hear some of your thoughts about this. You've heard from Annie, the story of Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis, or as we the Talk Public Health team call him, the original public health whistleblower. Unfortunately, stories similar to that of Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis also appear in the 20th century. For example, in China and the whistleblowing efforts of Dr. Wan Xuping. Dr. Wan exposed poor plasma donation and blood transfusion screening processes for hepatitis C and HIV in China, and how this led to thousands of people becoming infected. Sadly, her marriage broke down because her husband kept being harassed by the authorities to make her stop, and she ended up exiled to the U.S., where she remained for the rest of her life until recently passing away. But even more recently in Colombia, in this 21st century, we can find another notable public health whistleblower story of Dr. Esperanza Ceron. As an advocate for sugar tax in Colombia, she has been challenging the soft drink giants and has faced significant harassment and threats, which are still ongoing. Dr. Ceron has recalled stories of mysterious people tailgating her car on the highway and noticing that her phones were being tapped. And we can say from our perspective that her life has been threatened and her voice silent, all because she chose to publicly discuss and expose the health risks of sugar for Colombians. Now, folks, these stories have a central theme that really ties back to some of Annie's key questions. Namely, if you choose to be a whistleblower, do you need to plan a strategy to do so? And should you be trying to make sure that you have some allies on your side? We end up celebrating these people in retrospect for their role in standing up for what they know is right and in the public good. But the industry and professional network pushback and isolation they suffer makes you question, would you be willing to pay the price of being a whistleblower? And how do we ensure that whistleblowing can be done more effectively in the public health sector? But the cases of whistleblowing does not end at an individual level, like the stories we've recently highlighted. There are also major organizational level events that have occurred in the past years, which we will explore. For example, let's consider the case of a popular management consulting firm, which some of you may have recently read an article about, titled, How McKinsey Infiltrated the World of Global Public Health. 
If you haven't read this article yet, we're adding the link in our episode description. Anyway, the article shed some light on the work of McKinsey, who were engaged by the World Health Organization, WHO, to help undertake reforms of the organization. However, in the article, it raises some questions on how much the firm and its consultants are actually paid and the work they actually do, with even some employees from the WHO allegedly noting that they haven't actually seen any improvements. Indeed, Charles. I believe this begs the question, without transparency about who is providing how much money to whom, how do we know who is actually driving the global health agenda? But of course, we have explored this topic in past conversations about the rise of philanthropic capitalists and their huge foundations, and how they play a huge role in sharing the global health agenda. These huge foundations and their donation to the WHO are earmarked to support the use of external consultancy firms, like the one in this story perhaps because they support their common corporate background. Can this lead to WHO creating a culture of dependency on these firms, which is not sustainable in the long run, but even more relevant to some of the core values of health, is how much are these consultants actually paid? Ah, true, Naomi. If only there was a higher degree of transparency, we may be able to answer those questions. But this raises an interesting situation where whistleblowing in public health it's also happening from the consultancy firm side. Uh, people may or may not know the name Anand Gurdadis, a notable whistleblower and former McKinsey consultant, who seems to share a similar message with that of other ex-consultants, that money spent on them is probably better spent on actual global health programs. You can check out Anand's book called Winners Take All if you want to learn a bit more. And with Anand's recent confessions, it really makes me reflect on the question, is the work being done by consultants actually cost-efficient? Exactly, Charles. I think it might be worth doing some more research on the outcomes of engaging consultants in health. That way, at least, there will be evidence that the money spent on them is maximized for efficiency in reforms. <laughs> I mean, the only study that looked into an adequate quality on consultants in healthcare was done in the UK by the NHS, which is the National Health Service. But it found no increase in efficiency after engaging consultants in the system. Well, what does that say? And I know that this seems like quite a bit of a segue, folks. But these are the very questions that whistleblowing forces us to ask and answer. Because it delves to the core about how health systems operate around the world. We constantly hear about new models of care and improved efficiency in health systems. But we may also need to consider how the operating models of consultancy firms may clash with how effective health programs can be implemented. For example, these firms usually operate with a corporate model of quick and measurable results. But are they held accountable for when they make mistakes? Unfortunately, this may not always be the case, even in public health, where their mistakes impact the lives and well-being of millions and billions of people worldwide. Yes, these are all valuable questions and we could go on forever because there are so many more examples and stories on whistleblowing health that we would have loved to cover. But the time will not allow us. Ultimately though, we hope with our drive through history on whistleblowing in public health that you have managed to learn quite a bit about this topic. Or we'll get to reading the resources that we have mentioned in the episodes to learn more. One resource that I found really interesting, and I would encourage our audience to review, is an academic paper titled Practical Virtue Ethics, 
Healthcare Whistleblowing on Portable Digital Technology by S. Bolin et al., 2015, which is published in the British Medical Journal, so BMJ. Because this topic of whistleblowing in public health is certainly bound to evolve with the greater use of digital technology in health. It is at this point, though, that we would like our audience to reflect on a few questions related to today's episode. The questions that we'd love you to reflect on and hear your thoughts about are, does it matter how the whistleblowing is done? If you choose to be a whistleblower, then do you need to plan a strategy to do so? Should you be trying to make sure that you have some allies on your side? And can somebody learn to be a better and more effective whistleblower? You can provide us with your responses to our questions by leaving a comment or review on our episode pages across social media, particularly on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and wherever you listen to our podcast. Additionally, if you want to delve a bit deeper into this topic of whistleblowing in public health, we are providing web-exclusive content specifically for our subscribers. This will include us sharing more content and stories about this issue and engaging you, our audience, on a more personal level. You can have access to this content by subscribing to our mailing list, which you can access on our website, talkpublichealth.com. And to close, we'd like to encourage you to be nice to someone today. Show some empathy, because you, me, those public health whistleblowers, and everyone here on this planet, we are all that we have. And we look forward to sharing with you next time when we delve into another topic on Talk Public Health. Enjoy Enjoy your your day. day. Bye. Bye.